Greetings from Scum, Seattle, where I was last weekend. Zach and Melissa say hi. And uh, Scum, Seattle is a small church, about um, 15 people or so. So it's kind of like a small group, but I really believe that they're on the front end of a new season. And so I ask that you would remember to pray for Scum, Seattle for Zach and Melissa, um, same ethos, a little different pathos, if you know what I mean, a little different feeling there. Um, as most of you know, I'm going to be gone again, but this time for a longer period of time. I go on sabbatical starting the second week in January, and I won't be back until after the 4th of July. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, the cat's away, the mice are going to play, let me tell you. Um, but um, these next few messages that I have in the month of December and beginning in January, I think for me then become all the more poignant because I get to say things that I think are really, really important. Or at least that's true for this message. So pay attention. For starters, while I'm gone, I want you to all get along. I want you to live well in community for a couple reasons. The first reason that I want you to all get along is because I really do want you to enjoy following Jesus together. It's really important to me that you would take joy in this life we have to live on this planet together as the people of God. It just makes it so much easier, right? Because life is hard. And when you're living with people who have your back, who encourage you, who correct you lovingly, it's just that much better. I want you to love being part of a church that helps you to follow Jesus more closely. And the second reason is that I know if you're doing that well, in the middle of a world that is fallen and sometimes antagonistic to not only the gospel of Christ but to Christians, that this will place this place could become a refuge for you, a kind of refuge that also looks extremely attractive to those who are not part of the body of Christ as they see you love one another. Those are my two hopes for while I'm gone, which tie in very, very well with the portion of Peter's first letter that we're going to read today also known as Rocky One, if you know anything about what the name Peter means. So if you have a Bible open to chapter 3 of 1 Peter, starting in verse 8, if not, just go ahead and read with me on the overhead. It'll be right up there. Finally, all of you should be of one mind. Sympathize with each other. Love each other as brothers and sisters. Be tender-hearted and keep a humble attitude. 
Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do, and he will bless you for it. For the scriptures say, if you want to enjoy life and see many happy days, keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right, and his ears are open to their prayers, but the Lord turns his face against those who do evil. Uh, maybe you listen to this or read along and we're thinking, blah, 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 Christians should be nice, blah, 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 okay, I get it. Because that's the way I was tempted to read it as I prepared for this message. I mean, really, my problem was not so much the information that was contained in the text. It was the inspiration that I needed to give the sermon. I thought, man, if I am not inspired, I feel sorry for the people who have to listen to me on Sunday night. So let's read it again, thinking about how Scum Daddy is going away for six months and wants you to live while he's gone and after he gets back. Let's read it again. Finally, all of you should be of one mind. Sympathize with each other. Love each other as brothers and sisters. Be tender-hearted and keep a humble attitude. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do, and he will bless you for it. For the scriptures say, and here the Apostle Peter quotes his favorite psalm, number 34. If you want to enjoy life and see many happy days, keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the Lord turns his face against those who do evil. Just to give you a little background, we've been going through what really is a moral code for a while. It began with Adam talking about what it means to be good citizens under a government in a country. So Peter addressed us as citizens and how we should submit to the authorities. He drew a line between submission to authorities and obedience to God as not being the same thing, but having some crossover. It was an excellent message. I suggest you go back and listen if you never heard it. Because after that, we talked about the relationships of slaves to masters, even slaves to bad masters and how slaves should respond to unbelieving, harsh masters. The whole submissive thing once again, so that the gospel may be made more apparent 
And after we were done with slaves and masters, Peter takes us to the relationships between unbelieving husbands and their believing wives. In other words, wives who are Christians and following Jesus and husbands who are not. He talks about that for a while. And then he kind of goes into a general husband and wife category about how you should be with one another. And Jesse Holloman did a great job with that. Very, very difficult topic. That he cursed me for giving him to him. At the beginning of his sermon, I got to hear that on the podcast. It was great. And then, of course, he says, hi to Zach. Hi, Zach. Hi, everybody in Seattle. Curse you, Mike Sears. It's okay. Because this message is all about me overlooking that. Which I really have no problem doing. Because I love Jesse and Jesse loves me. And that covers a multitude of problems. So today we are ending up with what it means to live together as a community. Now at SCUM, I think we have the idea and the practice of community down pretty well for some people. There'll be a potluck at Jesse and Jesse Hallman's house tomorrow. There'll be, you know, 60 people there. It'll be great. People will love each other. Because we found people who not only believe in Jesus, but have the same ethos as we do, the same basic beliefs, and even some of the more minor beliefs about ecology and about consumerism and about all sorts of things, politics, social justice. But the church of Jesus is not just to be people who think exactly the same way that we do. Or are the same size as us. It is about old and young, slave and free, rich and poor, single and married, black and white, Republican and Democrat, Pentecostal and academic, all those differences of opinions. And so Peter wants to talk to us about what it means to be the community of God. And sometimes... We're not as good at that with people who look different than us. I mean, I said this this morning, I'll say it again. If some person walks in here with docker slacks on and polo shirt with some kind of embroidery deal right here and a clean-shaven face and very nicely coiffed hair, he might have a more difficult time feeling community than if he came in wearing tight black jeans, a death metal t-shirt, a couple wallet chains hanging out of his back pockets, um, a dirty ball cap, and a full Duck Dynasty beard. (laughs) Because we embrace those people easily. And what Peter is saying is it should be for everybody. All right. 
So here's an interesting thing. He says that he wants us to be of one mind. Let's go back to the beginning of the passage, verse 8. He wants us to be of one mind. I did some study in the original language, in the Greek. You'll be pleased to know that in the original Greek, one mind actually means one mind. There you go. One mind. One mind or attitude. That when it comes to the things that matter, the basic tenets of the faith, we should all be on the same page. If we want to grow with God in obedience to his word. Things like Jesus is Lord. Those kind of things are very, very important. That it provides a framework for us to walk through all the difficulties of walking together in life actually afford. Because it's difficult to live in community with people once you get by the honeymoon phase. But if you have the basis of the gospel, you're of one mind. You'll work through it. Other translations talk about this like living in harmony. I just, even though it's not the Greek word, one mind is a better translation. Living in harmony with one another doesn't mean singing in unison. It means singing different parts, doing different things but somehow they all blend together into the song that it's supposed to be. Peter doesn't want us to be demanding, to have things our own way all the time. This is hardest for me, because sometimes I see myself as a senior pastor. Like I'm the boss. And I have to forcibly let go of that prerogative, that privilege... In Christ, because I know that Jesus let go of a lot of his prerogatives when he left heaven, a place where he ruled in perfect peace, where he enjoyed ultimate power and authority. And we're told at Christmas time that he became a little baby who was dependent upon fallen human parents. Huge cosmic power, itty-bitty living space. That's Christmas right there. So I'm only following in the footsteps of Jesus, and you're only following in the footsteps of Jesus when you let go of the things that really don't matter and hold on to the things that do. We're a church that allows you to ask questions while seeking truth. That's in our mission statement. You can have doubts while you're here. It's okay. We're not going to kick you out because you're trying to figure it out. And we have different ideas of all sorts of theological issues that are not primary. It's okay. We try to love each other through them. 
I've got a friend who's in a large denomination. He's a pastor there. And in his particular denomination, whenever a new pastor comes to be ordained, he's got to come before the group of pastors from all over the city, all over that area, and be questioned as to theological issues of great importance. He said, Mike, you wouldn't believe it. He said, a person in my city would have a harder time being ordained if he did not believe in the ordination of women than if he believed there were many paths to God and Jesus was just one of them. In other words, for his group of pastors, the lordship of Christ was secondary to the ordination of women. Now, I'm not taking a side here. You can probably guess that the lordship of Christ is really, really high on my list of priorities. But women being ordained is one of the minor issues, especially if you're a guy, Not so much if you're a girl. But I just want to say that these are the kinds of things that tear communities apart. Churches have split over these issues. And I want to say that maybe Peter is asking us to keep the main thing the main thing and stay together when it comes to the things that are not so major. The second thing that Peter does is to ask us to sympathize, which means to be affected in your feelings. So he goes from this kind of very heady idea of being of one mind, this very academic idea that there is truth that should not be changed, that there are some things you cannot disagree on, to saying, you know what, I want it to be the kind of church where you got a lot of feelings for each other. If you thought the Bible was not about feelings, you're wrong. It's totally about feelings as well as about the intellect. And if you've ever had a problem with feelings, then you've got a problem with God because God has feelings and God made us to have feelings. In the Old Testament, God seems to have a lot more feelings, doesn't he? especially the ones of anger. The difference between God and us is when God is angry, he doesn't sin when he's angry. But he created us to have feelings, and he wants us to have feelings for each other. Our Savior, we're told in Hebrews chapter 4, is one who can sympathize with us. Why? Because he's had a human body like us. He still has a human body like us. This blows my mind, that in the Trinity of the Godhead, there is a human form. That forever he has raised the human form because of his sacrifice on the cross to a status unlike any others. Even the angels don't enjoy that kind of identity with God in body. Jesus feels what we feel because he felt what 
we feel. He was a human. He understands. And as a result, we're to allow the feelings of others to enter into our world. I don't know if you're like me, but when things get overwhelming, when there's a terrible tragedy, I tend to wall off my feelings so that I don't get depressed. I think it happened as a result of my mom dying at a young age, but I can just shut myself off when the news comes on about a baby found in an alley, in a dumpster, or when there's a tsunami that kills thousands and thousands of people, or when there's murders. I just, it, I mean, I just close off. And what Peter is asking us to do is don't close yourself off. Feel those feelings. Sympathize with people who are around you in this body. There is nothing that means so much as when you're down and out or you're in the hospital and, and you get a visit from somebody. You remember that for years and years and years. That somebody cared enough. Or you bust through the uncomfortable awkwardness when you find out someone's diagnosed with cancer and you go and you just sit with them. You don't have to say anything. You just go there and sit with them and they feel your presence, the ministry of being there. We should do all we can to make people feel accepted and loved. Don't say, well, they should understand. It's a church. Of course they're accepted. It's difficult to enter a church and to feel accepted. The third thing we're asked to do is to love each other as brothers and sisters. Peter uses a word, Philadelphia. It's the Greek word for brotherly love. He means for us to love like brothers and sisters love. How many people have brothers and sisters? Raise your hand. Okay, this is the great thing about brothers and sisters, especially since it's just been Thanksgiving and Christmas is coming up and you go back home and all those terrible feelings come up from when you were 7 or 12 or whatever and, you know, they stuck your head down the toilet and flushed or um, they constantly <laughs> pretended like you weren't there. No matter how badly family treats you, siblings treat you, they're still your siblings. They can make fun of you to your face, but if you get into a fight at school, your siblings are there to beat up whoever is going to beat up on you. And he wants us to have that kind of bounce to our love. That even if, if Sister Sandpaper or Brother Brillo Pad really ticks you off, and they will, that after a time you'll come back and you'll love them and you'll be there for them and you'll bring them a meal when, you know, they're down and out or you'll help pay their utility bill when they're out of work. I don't know what it is or why it is this way, but uh, we treat guests better than we treat family members, right? We should probably start to treat 
our family members like we treat guests and treat our guests like we treat family. That might be more healthy. It seems that because home, home is a place where, where manners are not required, you can come home, you can take off your shoes, you can walk around even though you have stinky feet, you can burp, you can belch, you can fart out in the open, you don't have to worry about it because people around you are family. Sometimes we feel like since that's the case, then there's a fam- family is a place where no manners are required, which is not true where you can be as rude as you want to be. And I'm not just speaking about your home families. I'm talking about the community of God. Our metaphorical burping and farting. Let's try and make Scum of the Earth Church a place where we do have some consideration for each other's feelings, even though they're all Christians and they have to accept us. And then he also says for us to be tender-hearted, kind-hearted, compassionate. It's interesting that um, the Greek word from where Paul grabs tender-hearted actually has an etymology that goes back to courageous. Courageous. It has to do with the uh, having guts, actually, in Greek, the splanka. It's a feeling that goes down deep into your guts. It's not just about cold duty to one another. It's having this visceral connection. And I really do think there's a degree of courage in being tender-hearted or being compassionate with somebody. I said this this morning, so I'll say it tonight. You guys know... My wife, Mary, you know that she's probably the most kind-hearted and compassionate person you'll meet in a long time. As I said before, my wife knows no strangers. This was brought home to me when we went to the movie theater just about a week ago. And uh, she had to go to the restroom, so I was waiting out in the lobby. And I was waiting. And I was waiting. And I was waiting. I thought, I hope she feels okay. But then I hear voices coming from the women's restroom. And one of them is my wife's. There was a woman in there who had lost something at the theater and was very anxious about it. And I don't know how they do this in the women's restroom, but they got into a conversation and Mary was trying to comfort her and instruct her about what she might be able to do to find the thing she needed to find that she had left in the movie theater. Now that takes some courage to approach people in the restroom. If you, like me, you go in there and you close the stall door and you don't want anybody to bother you or even know that you're there. There's a degree of courage when it comes to stepping out of yourself and being tenderhearted and compassionate towards somebody else. Because you know that as soon as you scratch beneath the surface of their life, you're going to find a tremendous amount of pain. And you've got to be brave to be compassionate. 
Because you're going to have to give something of yourself. And Peter is calling us to be that way with each other. It takes guts to be tenderhearted. And last, he says, to keep a humble attitude with each other. Literally, uh, it's lowliness of mind. To keep yourself a few steps below others, that you will consider others more important than yourself. I know I'm going against the grain of everything you learned in grade school about self-esteem and how, you know, you got to like you, you got to love you before you love anybody else. I'm not sure that's totally a Christian idea. I mean, I get the idea that we can love others as we love ourselves, and the more we love ourselves, the more we can love others. But the Bible never seemed to be worried about your lack of self-esteem. Rather, the Bible seems to be worried about your arrogance and your pride and how you think you're better than other people. When you find out that you're a sinner and that Christ forgave you, then it's a lot easier to forgive other people's sins. We say this when we say the Lord's Prayer over and over again. C.S. Lewis said, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. But I can hear you saying, you know, Mike, I'm not like that. This list is impossible for me, especially in the context of Christians, because I expect Christians to be better than they are. Christians have hurt me when they're supposed to have loved me. They've hurt my family when they were supposed to have taken care of my family. As a matter of fact, the abuse has been so great that I don't know if I can ever really trust Christians again. And I think if you said this to the Apostle Peter, who watched every one of his friends forsake Jesus as he denied Jesus that last night. He would say, yes, but that's why there's a Holy Spirit who comes in and gives you the power to do things that you never would be able to do. There's grace for you. I'm not the same man that I was the night that Jesus was tried. You can see it in Peter's life as he goes to be crucified upside down because he's not worthy to be crucified in the same manner as Jesus. He put himself steps below. He humbled himself even in his dying.
If people see this in our lives, they will be drawn like iron filings to a magnet when it comes to their view of God. Look how they love one another. Surely God must be among them. I've got to get in on that kind of community. We're not to be known as quarrelsome people. People who are always ready to fight. We should be known as peace-loving people who practice that within our own churches, our own family, and also show it to outsiders. There was an article uh, in uh, British press just this week, actually, about a, an elderly Christian couple who owned a bed and breakfast. And I thought it was a really interesting article. I'm going to read the article as opposed to just summarizing it because the article was written by a pretty hardened journalist, someone who has done this for a long time, who was not a Christian and did not really agree with the elderly couple's Christians' beliefs. This is from November 28th. I thought they were just bigots, wrote one journalist. But Peter and Hazel Mary's Bulls, their last name is Bull, Peter and Hazel Mary Bull's sincerity on the BBC made me realize bigot was entirely the wrong word. That was the conclusion of one of the hardened journalists who does not share the Bull's beliefs but thinks that it's a shame they have been taken to court by equality campaigners. Rebecca McQuillan, a senior features writer at the Herald newspaper in Scotland, wrote, A BBC report had just come out about Peter and Hazel Mary Bull, the bed-and-breakfast-owning couple in Cornwall, who turned a gay couple away. The Bulls had lost their Supreme Court appeal against being found guilty of discrimination, and the reporter was talking to them outside the court. She said, I got ready to roll my eyes. I braced myself for what I expected to be their thinly disguised homophobic views. How many cases must we have, I wondered, before people running hotels and guest houses understand they can't discriminate like this? So it came as a bit of a surprise to find myself not sneering, but feeling rather sorry for this aging couple who had found that their faith in the Bible put them drastically at odds with equality laws. Bigot was entirely the wrong word. McQuillan says the Supreme Court was right to rule against Mr. and Mrs. Bull. And yet, she said, as I sat watching the bulls and felt sympathy not with their beliefs, but with their sense of bewilderment at finding themselves on the wrong side of the law. Here were not two head-banging zealots full of self-righteous anger about homosexuality, but a quietly spoken couple with a set of sincerely held religious beliefs and a straightforward interpretation of the Bible. She concluded, a gay friend of mine commented to me that if he had been visiting the bed and breakfast with his partner, he would have respected the couple's views by asking for a twin room instead. Perhaps, 
but I certainly don't blame the gay couple for going to court. It is just sad that when conflict breaks out between equality campaigners and religious believers, one side must always prevail and the other ends up feeling so crushed. So this couple had a policy that unless you were married, you couldn't stay in a room with a queen-size bed. It didn't matter if you were unmarried heterosexuals or unmarried homosexuals, they would not allow you to stay in that room. And so they were taken to court by this gay couple, and they lost. And then they lost the appeal all the way to the Supreme Court in Britain. Now, I'm not commenting on the gay issue here. What I want you to understand is that their demeanor, their non-quarrelsome attitude, so impressed this member of the British press that she said there's something there that's not bigotry. That's what I want to say. We should be known, even in the most difficult circumstances, as people who love. Because love, according to Carl Menninger, Dr. Carl Menninger, love cures. It cures those who give it, and it cures those who receive it. What I do want to talk about is how people feel when they first come to Scum of the Earth Church. Scum of the Earth can be a fairly intimidating place to visit. First of all, because of our name. Second of all, because we have no giant banner on the side of the building that says, we're here. You're walking in wondering, is this the place? Have I found it? And you can walk in and you see a bunch of folks who know each other for the most part, but you don't know them. That's always a difficult thing, right? And if we could be better at the community thing, I would say, can we at least be better at welcoming people who walk through the door? Can we be helpful? I'm going to be gone for six months. You can't rely on me to be the nice pastor guy who comes up and shakes someone's hands and says, oh, this is a scoop of scum. Let me show you around. Let me do this. I mean, I'm not going to be here to do that. We're going to have to be brave, courageous, have some guts, come out of ourselves be welcoming to people, setting aside the minor differences, and just concentrating on what's important, which is loving people in the name of Jesus Christ. It's kind of like uh, when you bring a new baby home from the hospital, and you've already got a baby at home. 
you got a two- or three-year-old, and you bring a new kid home from the hospital, your two- or three-year-old feels a little insecure about this new situation because someone else is taking the limelight. Someone else is taking mom's attention most of the day. Someone else is getting talked about by dad and by grandma and grandpa and uncles and aunts and friends and neighbors. And you've gone from being the sole star of the show to some kind of supporting character. Maybe you've been at scum for two or three years. Maybe longer. Sometimes it's difficult when someone new comes in, freshly born again from the spiritual hospital in heaven. And this person may have gifts and talents that you don't have and gets lots of attention from everybody else. Churches... Communities ought to be expanding and loving and bringing those people in and celebrating their gifts and letting them be part of the family, not shying away, not, you know what I'm talking about. When nothing changes, and the church stays the same, nobody gets upset. But when new people enter the community, like when a transfer student invades your homeroom, or a foreign exchange student is all of a sudden part of the neighborhood clique, then we find out whether you've got true community or not. When you can reach out to another person merely because he or she is a Christian or merely because that person is seeking Christ, then we're becoming the kind of community that the Apostle Peter is asking us to be. But when we find poor people, unacceptable, homeless people, suspicious, African-American people, African-American people, not quite the same as us. Greeks or Turks is kind of strange people. Folks from an Arabic background is suspect. Irish people is too loud and boisterous. then we're not being the kind of community that God wants us to be. If the churches in Peter's day, when he was writing this letter, were supposed to be havens for folks who are beginning to suffer persecution, then at least today, in this culture, scum of the earth church should be a place where you can come and to find refuge from the onslaught against your personal morals, against your identity, against your belief in God. 
God is holy and loving, and he wants his community, the church, to be holy and loving as well. Now, one of the people that I've had trouble with over the years, he's passed away, but um, was uh, Dr. Robert Schuller. He was the pastor of the Crystal Cathedral, the Hour of Power television broadcast. He was the first megachurch, first Protestant megachurch, really, that I was aware of. And he just had such a feel-good gospel, you know. He's kind of like my generation's Joel Osteen. And um, I just thought he was kind of inauthentic, a little too happy. Somebody I really couldn't relate to. But he was my brother. I mean, we were one in that we keep the main thing, the main thing, Jesus Christ and the gospel. And we differed in the minors. And so I have to let that go. Well, lo and behold, I find out about a prayer that Robert Schuller prayed every single day that I wish I'd been praying for the last 40 years. I really wish I've been praying this for the last 40 years because it so ties in with what the Apostle Peter is talking about in this passage. He said something like this, Dear Lord, lead me to the person you want to bless through my life today. Amen. Praying that prayer changed his life because he got to focus off of himself and onto other people, and he started looking at people differently than he normally would have. Instead of seeing people as problems, he saw people that he met as opportunities for the grace of God to come pouring through him. If he saw somebody, he would wonder, Lord, is that the person that I'm supposed to bless today? Is that the one? I think if we pray that prayer, we will never lack for opportunities to begin to be the kind of people the Apostle Peter is talking about in this section of his letter. And so this is my challenge, and this is my application for this message. I want you to pray this prayer with me. Maybe pray it every day this week. So if you have the guts, if you have the courage, you want to be sympathetic, of one mind, tender-hearted, then pray this with me. I'll line it out, phrase by phrase. You repeat it back. Dear Lord, lead me to the person you want to bless. through my life today. Amen.